With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right. How you doing, everybody? Casey Ryan here again for uh, another episode of The Cutting Room Floor, a little podcast that I started to showcase in the entertainers and creative types from all walks. I like to say if you've got a story to tell or a project to sell, I want to hear from you. The easiest way to get a hold of me is on Twitter. You can ask anybody that knows me. I'm on there all the time at Cutting Room MRB, or you can hit me up on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Cutting Room MRB, uh, or shoot me an email with your feedback, good, bad, or ugly. If you want to be on the show, if you have any kind of campaigns that you're trying to promote, if you've got any kind of projects that you're about to release or any events coming up, although in the age that we're in now, there probably aren't too many of those, but but if you've got anything that you want me to promote, please do let me know, uh, and I'm happy to get the word out there the best way that I can, cuttingroomfloor.mrb at gmail.com. Uh, so... Uh, every once in a while, you get a chance to do a couple of extra bonus episodes. One of the interesting dynamics behind the whole COVID-19 pandemic, and I do hope that everybody is safe. Uh, certainly, we've been fortunate in my house that, that nobody's been directly impacted by this health-wise or otherwise. Uh, but one of the interesting dynamics that I've noticed is that there's been a bit of a boost in terms of the demand for my show because everybody's at home and and they're looking for ways to promote their projects without actually setting foot outside their house uh and i'm happy to do it i really am this is something that i i really wasn't expecting but but i i welcome it and and if anybody is out there uh, i'm going to be doing a few extra episodes not every week but i i will be doing one or two during the week uh as time goes on uh both from the sake of wanting to make sure that I address everybody uh, who wants to be on the show and also to, quite frankly, give myself something to do. So, uh, again, shoot me an email. Let me know what you're thinking. And if you want to be on the show, we'll figure out a way to get you on here very quickly. Uh, so I've got three guests lined up for you today. We're going to be doing about an hour and a half. Uh, just by way of, of context here in, in three separate segments, you know, starting off with us uh, is somebody uh, who reached out to me over the course of, of the last couple of weeks, uh, just because we, we've had a couple of common acquaintances in the podcasting world. Uh, Vincent James is here. And, and just to give you some information on him, uh, Vincent, in conjunction with his wife, Joanne, are the founders of a nonprofit organization called Keep Music Alive. Uh, which is uh, very active in terms of music education advocacy. Uh, they've also got two international holidays and events that they've started as a result of this, uh, some of which boast some some very, very uh, well-known and, uh, and internationally recognized ambassadors. These people are household names. Uh, so, uh, and anytime anybody comes to me with any kind of musical advocacy thing, this is something that I feel very strongly about. Uh, I'm certainly going to offer up my own set of opinions on this because I, I do believe that it really does play an important role in high school education and elementary school education. I was a beneficiary of this. Uh, it changed my life for the better and certainly a, a, a key point of my development growing up. Uh, so I'm, I'm proud to have him on. So without further ado, the cutting room floor proudly welcomes. Uh, no pressure, Vincent. Uh, Vincent James is here. <laughs> Hi. 
Hey, how Casey, you doing? How are you doing? So the uh, the first question I always have for everybody when they're on here for the first time uh, is just a bit of an icebreaker. Did I get your bio information right, or is there anything that you'd like to modify or add? Oh no, Casey, that was spot on. Thank you so much, and I really appreciate this opportunity to share you know what we're doing with your audience, and love that you're doing so much to help share other creative endeavors you know around the world. So. Uh, Keep music alive. I, I, I guess what's the mission statement behind this, and, and uh, what are you doing with it? So, keep music alive, as you mentioned in the intro, is a, a nonprofit. It's actually a national nonprofit, and our mission is to basically help children and adults reap the educational, therapeutic, and social benefits of playing music. So, everything we do is geared towards trying to get more people learning to play an instrument. So that they will benefits of, of of playing. And uh, what's your own musical background like? Are, are you are a, a practice musician professionally, or is this something that you just took on as a hobby? I, I guess what's the level of uh, of your own personal expertise in this? Well, for me, music started back in elementary school. Uh, just a funny little story in fourth grade, you know, I also had the benefit of being able to play an instrument, you know, throughout school. And uh, I think the first time, you know, I went home from school that first day and told my parents, you know, I want to learn how to play the, uh, the guitar. And my parents said, no. So then I came back day and said, I want to play the drums. And they said, no, even louder. <laughs> I settled on the trombone and played that all through my schooling years, through my senior year in high school, marching band, concert band, jazz band. And also when I was at about 12 years old, I started playing the piano. My mom convinced my dad to bring a piano into the house because she really wanted to learn to play the piano as an adult. And I was drawn to that piano like a bead of honey. And, you know, soon I was starting to take lessons and and just have kept playing ever since. Uh, I play what I like to call semi-professionally. I mean, I do do gigs uh, around, not as much anymore since we're so much involved in the advocacy portion. Uh, but music, playing music has always been such a blessing in my life, and I want to share that gift with everyone. So I, I guess how did the advocacy, I mean, this leads fairly well into my next question, but how did the advocacy part of it start? Well, it's funny, you know, for so many years I did various things in the music world, you know, everything from writing songs, performing, I helped run recording studio, uh, I managed bands, uh, I wrote custom love songs through another website that I have for many years for weddings and anniversaries, but I never really felt fulfilled, completely fulfilled. And then one day I was listening to a webinar about, uh, and the topic was how every one of us has a book inside of us that we need to write. Right. And honestly, I thought about, you know, what what would I ever have to offer in a book? <laughs> I just didn't feel I had any real strong expertise that anybody would be interested in reading. Uh, but I decided to listen to the webinar, and in the middle of the webinar, I had this idea that honestly came from heaven above. Uh, why don't I put together a book of inspirational music stories about how music changed people's lives and put that out to help encourage more people to play music? And that's kind of how this whole thing started. We had a, we uh, put together a book series called 88 Plus Ways Music Can Change Your Life. Uh, and 
things started to dovetail from that into the music holidays that you referenced. Uh, and that was about this June. It will be six years since kind of the seed was planted and everything started and has been building up, you know, gradually each year from there. Now, the, the 88 ways, I, I mean, I'm assuming that, that that's kind of a, you know, a nod to, to the number of keys on a piano, right? Sure, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I could have uh, with six keys, the guitar strings, but the 88 seemed... <laughs> it's a little bit more compelling, right? Yeah. Yeah, a little more compelling. And uh, I don't know, that title just came to me. I can't even, explain. you know, you get these inspirations and we don't really know where they come from. So I say they're divine inspiration. They come from above. Uh, it's not something I could have thought of on my own. So how, how many books have been in the series and are, are they all based on your own stories or, or have you solicited them from, from other people? I, I guess, what's the scope of these books? So it's funny. So uh, there has been just one book published so far and we're currently gathering stories for the second book, which will come out later this year. And in the first book, I actually did not include a story of my own. Uh, <laughs> Joanne and co authors did include a her own of how music affected growing up. Uh, she had a very important role. Uh, but what we did is we reached out to for the first book over musicians that we reached out to, asking if they would like to contribute a story uh, for the book, and that's how we were able to gather the different stories that went into the first book. Uh, okay, and what kinds of stories did you did you include? I mean, uh, you know, just give us an example of one of the ones that you would have profiled. Sure, sure. I mean, we have stories that you know, some that make you laugh, some that you need a box of you know tissues nearby, some will just make you say, "Oh, I can't believe that happened." And if you like, I can share uh, one story. Some of the stories we got uh, were from celebrities. Uh, we did reach out to a number of celebrities asking if they would like to contribute a story. Uh, because the book series, 50% of all proceeds are donated to other music education nonprofits. So we're just trying to keep paying it forward. Uh, so okay. there were a number of celebrities that contributed a story or a quote in the first book. Uh, and one of them came to us from Simon Kirk, who is the drummer from Bad Company and, 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 the, and the band Free as well prior to that. And Simon came to us with a story, uh, basically how he was giving a drum clinic in the U.K. several years back. And he's up on stage in this huge auditorium, and the stage, stage lights are on, but it's all dark. You know, he can't really see out into the auditorium. And as Simon Kirk is demonstrating these different drum techniques, he's pulling out different percussion instruments and showing little ways of how to use them, he keeps hearing this clicking sound coming from somewhere in the auditorium. And at first, kind of like, you know, tries to ignore it, you know, he's a professional, he's not going to worry about it. He just continues on giving his drum uh, clinic. And he's pulling out, again, more instruments and trying different symbols and different things, and he's talking in between and showing how these different things work. And, again, he keeps hearing this clicking sound coming from somewhere in the auditorium. And at one point, he's starting to actually get a little bit annoyed, like, you know, they've asked me to come here, come and do this clinic, and so someone's making this percussive sound out here that's kind of interfering with my concentration. But he doesn't say a word. He just continues on, and he finishes his presentation, and at the very end, the house lights go up, and for the very first time, he can see in the back of the auditorium is a row of wheelchairs with children sitting in them, and in their hands, they're holding drumsticks. 
and they've been playing with him the entire time. Oh, jeez. That 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 would. Exactly. Uh, I, I, oh, I mean, he 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 must he must he must have had tears in his eyes when he saw that. <laughs> yes, he went he 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 went out to the back of the auditorium and he knelt down and he shook every one of their hands and said, "Thank you, thank you so much for playing with me today. I really appreciate it." And I truly think that Simon was a changed person uh, after that experience. I know, you know, Joanne, my co-author, and myself. You know, we literally cried when we read that story, and I still I tear up now when I every time I retell that story. Uh, it's just amazing how music can impact so many different people uh, in different situations in their lives, and we don't really even know and recognize, you know, until sometimes we're thrust into it, and we're like, oh my God, uh, it's powerful. So, so what is it about music as a construct that you think makes it inherently, you know, good for for a person's health, mentally and and even physically to some extent? Well, you know, there's been a lot of research done, uh, and we've been trying to keep up as much as we can. And one of the things we we discovered was that music is one of the few activities that we do, you know, as humans that actually connects the left logical side of our brain with the right creative side of our brain. So when children are learning to play music at a young age, they're actually building up neural, neuron capacity between the two sides of the brain. Uh, they actually did a study where they scanned you know, children's brains that had played music as a child for a number of years versus children that hadn't. And there was an increase in size of the corpus callosum that connects the two sides of the brain. And this extra capacity is what other research has shown uh, how kids do better in uh, many of the core subjects like English, math, and science uh, than children that haven't had the opportunity to learn to play music. So that's certainly one big piece of it. Uh, and another piece of it is when children are playing music as part of you know programs at their school, they're also learning a lot of different soft skills, everything from you know discipline, perseverance, uh, learning how to work together as part of a team. I mean, when you start to learn to play an in instrument, for the first time, you know, it sounds like crap. <laughs> it doesn't sound very good. Right. So the, right. the child learns that, okay, they have to practice. And then through practice, they start to see their skills develop and their talent develop. And then they can actually hear the difference a week later, a month later, six months later. And then they put on this concert in front of their parents where together as a team, they and their, stu their fellow students uh, were able to, you know, put together this ensemble piece that, you know, six months ago, no way was going to happen. So they get that helps to build their confidence, which leads them to believe that they can accomplish even more things, you know, with music and other areas of their life. So there's just, I don't know, to me it's just countless the number of ways that, that you know, kids benefit from playing music. Now, you, you've touched on a couple of different things here, and, and uh, you know, before I kind of volunteer a little bit of my own story, uh, which again, you know, has been really important to to who I am. But um, I, I guess I'm kind of curious, from your own view, uh, what you think of the current state of musical education in the United States in general, or, or are you able to to hazard an opinion on the subject? Uh, I think it's a mixed bag. You know, I think there are okay. areas where communities and school <clears throat> districts are doing a really great job of keeping music alive and well in the school systems. And then there's other areas, you know, particularly, say, in inner city areas or in some of the rural, more rural areas, 
where they're struggling to keep education alive. You know, whether it's not having enough money for instruments or not having enough money to, you know, hire teachers. Uh, and, you know, fortunately there are a number of nonprofits throughout the country that do try to backfill some of that lack of actual music education put on by the school systems. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're encouraged that, you know, like Keep Music Alive, there are so many nonprofits, uh, music education advocacy groups throughout the country and world that are, you know, keep fighting back the other way and trying to keep, you know, the importance of music education present, you know, in the kids' minds, the parents' minds, the school districts' minds. And, you know, I feel like it's working. It's, you know, we can never really let up, <laughs> but, you know, I feel it's working. Now, I, I, one of the things that, that always kind of strikes a bit of a nerve with me is you, you see these ads on TV all the time that math plus science equals success. And, and I, I mean, I'm all for that. OK, I, I have a science yeah. education. I, I, you know, bless the training that I got in that. Right. Uh, but I keep citing my own grandfather as an example. My grandfather, may he rest in peace, died when I was, you know, just a young person. But, but uh, it, you know, he was a lifelong pharmacologist who ran his own uh, medical company. But he also was a very accomplished pianist who could sit down and entertain people at the end of a night and have them completely raptured for hours. And... Uh, it's it's one of these things that's not mutually exclusive that there's a lot of scientific people out there that also have a creative bent as well like you you highlighted before oh absolutely i mean well you know a thing that i like to say is you know there are countless you know, scientists inventors doctors entrepreneurs that credit of you know part of their success to having early music education i mean the most high profile example of that you know is einstein himself uh, you know, he would literally, you know, play the piano or the violin, you know, an hour every day of his life. And he made many of his discoveries, you know, while sitting at the piano stool. have a paper, you know, on the stool, on the piano bench. He would play a little bit, let his fingers, you know, just improvising, wander around the keyboard and the piano, you know. And then he would pick up the piece of paper and a pen and he'd write some idea he had while he was playing. And then he'd put it back down and he'd play some more. I mean, there is absolute connection between, you know, technology and the creativity. That's why the whole STEAM, you know, initiative was born out of that. You know, the science, technology, uh, what is it, engineering, arts, and math. So you put the right. arts in the middle and said, then we have STEAM. Much better. <laughs> Yeah, much better, I would argue, right? Uh, I mean, yes. you know, from my own perspective, I mean, I mean you know, my, uh, I, I was part of a, you know, a class band when I was in, in high school, and I was a, a trumpet player myself, and, and uh, I mean, you know, that, that got me to Europe twice before I turned 18 years old because uh, of, of senior trips that we took, uh, and we went around all over Northern Europe and playing in things like old folks' homes, community centers, and things like that, but overseas and doing uh, exchanges like level schools although they could blow us out of the water most of the time but but uh you know that we're over there and they come over and, and visit us the same way that that hockey teams or, or football teams do with with other uh areas and uh, you know so this, those are some of the most cherished moments of my life right uh yeah, you so i mean I, yeah you never replace those experiences that you would never have had without picking up that trumpet no no 
Um, now let, let's take a, uh, a sidestep for a, a second and, and focus on the two holidays that you've got, right? Uh, one of which I, I don't know that in the wake of the, uh, the pandemic that you were able to, to, to get this off the ground, but you had a, a teach music week in March. Yes. Yes. So, uh, last month we did celebrate the sixth annual teach music week, and that's where we invite musicians, music schools, and music stores everywhere to offer a free lesson to new students with the idea of getting them, you know, started and interested in playing music. And you're absolutely right. Just as we were getting close to March 16th, things were getting very hairy. <laughs> so what we did is we pivoted and, you know, both to the schools and to the media where we encouraged them to still, you know, get prospective students to contact them, to email them, to call them, and to schedule either a free online lesson, which many of them are doing now, or to schedule, you know, an in-person lesson back when, the, you know, in the future when the restrictions are lifted. Uh, so we were able to get it off, and we did pivot it. Uh, but I'm sure, you know, as things were kind of picking up very quickly at that time, uh, we didn't weren't able to have as big an impact as we had hoped. But we were still getting the message out and across. So that's Teach Music Week in March. Always happens the third week in March. And this October, we will be celebrating the fifth annual Kids Music Day. And what that's about is we, again, we connect with music schools, music stores, and other music nonprofits throughout the world. Uh, I think last year we had 600 locations in 15 countries. And what we encourage them to do is to hold a special event or promotion that either benefits or celebrates kids playing music. And that can range everything everything from a student performance, either in-house or out in the community. It can be an instrument petting zoo where kids get to come in and try different instruments. Uh, can be an instrument donation drive. Uh, could be a, a ukulele or drum circle. Uh, could even be a kids' music day sale instrument or lesson. Uh, and we utilize, you know, Teach Music Week in March, Teach Music Day in October as a way to kind of galvanize the media and the public to, you know, pay attention to how important music is. And again, with the sole goal of getting more kids and families and parents, you know, interested in starting to play. And even people that maybe have stopped playing, you know, musicians that started long ago, uh, to, you know, consider picking up their instrument again or picking up a different instrument in another phase of their life. Uh, again, because we know the benefits they're going to receive if they if they continue playing. Uh, you've used a a term that I'm going to co-opt because uh, <laughs> I've been doing this show a long time. I've talked to a lot of people. I've never heard anybody put it quite the way uh, of a um, a musical petting zoo. And uh, what a beautiful little image that is. And that's really what it is, isn't it? Is to allow kids to you know to get wide-eyed by singing a you know the size of a, a trombone or a tuba or, or you know a saxophone yes. or anything else that's big and shiny and makes all kinds of really cool noise right <laughs> yes well it's funny you know i would love to say that we came up with the term but about three years ago we noticed uh, you know music school somewhere in the country was using the term and i'm like my eyes lit up that's awesome that's <laughs> exactly so what it is really right yeah <laughs> spread that around and it's funny, we did an instrument petting zoo uh, this past October for Kids Music Day and at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland uh, for four hours. And you had families coming in, you know, to see the museum. Some of them knew the petting zoo was going on and brought them just for that reason. And some of them were just coming just to visit the museum. Uh, but then they saw the petting zoo and they brought their kids over. 
And it was so funny that the, the kids would run over, you know, and play, try the different instruments. And we had some students from uh, uh, different music schools come in and help, uh, you know, guide the kids. Uh, and then, you know, the parents would kind of, like, drag the kids away, you know, eventually, you know, let's go see the museum. And then, you know, occasionally you'd see a kid, you know, making a beeline, running back <laughs> with the parent in hot pursuit because <laughs> the kids wanted to come back to see, the, you know, the petting zoo again, like, right away instead of waiting till later when they were leaving. <laughs> It's a beautiful site. Um, I, I guess um, for, from your own perspective, uh, if I can strike a, uh, uh, for pardon the pun, but if I could strike a serious chord for a second, uh, in in the wake of, of the times that we live in, the reality is is that you know live events like concerts or theater performances, and I've certainly had two <laughs> I had tickets for it get pushed back for almost a year. Uh, but I, I guess what, in your view, is, is long-term reality of, of, of live performances? Do you think it's going to be ever get back to the point where we were a few months ago, or do you think that things are going to evolve fundamentally? I think it's absolutely going to get back to where it was a few months ago. I just, you know, we just really can't know when, whether okay. that's later this right. year, sometime later next year. Uh, we really don't know. But I think the pent-up demand is going to be for people to connect in person. Right. It's going to make it, you know, for a little while bigger, at some point bigger than it was. And then I think it will, you know, level off to, you know, kind of the, the directory that it originally had. Uh, what this has given us, you know, the opportunity, uh, the silver lining in the pandemic is it's given us uh, the chance to kind of focus on other ways that we can reach people, uh, everything from music schools, creating programs that they can teach online, you know, in the future. So when there's a storm or other reasons why they can't teach in person, they have that ability to do so. Uh, I'd love to figure out a way to put an instrument petting zoo online, uh, you know, where kids could actually virtually touch the instruments, uh, maybe I can inspire a programmer somewhere, somewhere to help us come up with that. Uh, I'm actually going to take a pause here. I, uh, one of my next guests, Eric Schumacher, has been waiting in the green room for us. Uh, I'm going to, Eric, I'm going to unmute your line here and bring you into the discussion. Uh, just so that you know, Vincent, Eric is a, uh, a longtime collaborator of the cutting room floor. He's a filmmaker from Arizona who, uh, also uh, believes in a lot of community outreach. Uh, Eric, are you there? I am here. Thank hey, you for having me on. Good, so, good. Thanks uh, for having me. So, uh, Eric, I don't know how much of this conversation that, that you uh, that you heard, but uh, Vincent, where are you based? You're in the New York area, right? Uh, we're in the Philadelphia area. Oh, Philadelphia. Okay. All right. Uh, so, uh, Eric, I don't know how much of this uh, conversation that you heard, but, but Vincent's got a really great uh, nonprofit organization that, that advocates music uh, education in schools. Uh, we were just talking about that. That's fantastic. Uh, I was just wondering if you had a question for him. Uh, well, I, I, I just tuned into uh, just the last little bit of the uh, conversation, um, so, so, so I'm not sure what you've already covered, but uh, uh, in terms of music education, um, how, are you, uh, uh, how are you handling that during the, uh, the, 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 you know, the current uh, stay-at-home uh, environment and the, and the pandemic environment? How, uh, how's that working differently? Right, right. So what we've done is 
So what we typically work with is actually like music schools and music stores, and we also advocate for music in regular schools. Uh, but what we've done is we've been sharing a number of online resources that have put out with uh, the National Association of Music Merchants and other organizations that are off schools and uh, on how music schools and music stores and even regular music teachers can utilize uh, diff these different tools to be teaching online both securely and efficiently uh, to try to make the transition. And you know, I've been, we've been literally amazed at the number of schools and teachers that have been able to make that transition. You know, within like a couple weeks. You know, in the, that first week or two, I think it was pretty hairy for many of them. Uh, but we've gotten reports that many of them have gotten their full lesson programs up online, and are teaching. You know, almost if not as many students as they were prior to the the pandemic. It's absolutely fantastic. Uh, it really is. I know that uh, arts education in general <clears throat> has. Uh, suffered a lot in recent years particularly uh, within the public school system and uh, having some kind of, having something that uh, that supplements that is uh, is really incredibly important especially right now when people just need something to uh, uh, to help feed their souls and to give them uh, an outlet to to create um, so that's really a beautiful thing uh, and uh, Vincent, I, I was looking. You've got some very impressive ambassadors that that uh, have been advocates for what you're doing too. I mean, you know, the likes of some of the biggest names in the business, people like Jack Black and Julie Andrews too, right? That were listed on your website. Yes, we've been very fortunate to have a number of pretty musicians, uh, you know, offer their you know, basically their endorsement of Kids Music Day and to lend their name and their image as a Kids Music Day ambassador. And really that happens. We asking and being persistent and, uh, you know, just a piece of advice, you know, I give to anyone trying to accomplish something. Uh, you know, if you don't get an answer back from someone, it doesn't necessarily mean no. It could mean a million different things. So we literally reached out to Julie Andrews' people uh, over a three-year period and never received a single response from any of the, you know, with agents, publicists, anyone. And then one day out of the blue, you know, as we kept reaching out, we got a response. Andrew just had to be a kid's music beautiful. ambassador. So, so just keep polite persistence and just keep the bus moving and, you know, you'll eventually draw good things into your path. So where can people go to learn more uh, about all the great work that you're doing, Vincent? This is your chance to, uh, you know, to, to promote any links or social media feeds or upcoming events or floor is yours. Where can people go to learn more? Uh, the best place for Keep Music Alive would be just simply keepmusicalive.org, and that'll take you to Teach Music Week and to Kids Music Day and other different things that we're doing. Uh, and for the book series, 88 Plus Ways Music Can Change Your Life, you can just Google 88 Ways or you can also go to 88waysmusic.com. Uh, especially if you'd like to submitting it. Okay, we, uh, yeah, we, we missed the last couple of uh, sentences there. I, I just want to make sure we get it all. So we can reach out to keepmusicalive.org, and that'll take us oh. to the nonprofit Each Music Week and Kids Music Day. And then for the book series, you can go to 88waysmusic.com, or you can simply search 88 Ways Music on Amazon. And we'd love to have a 
Okay, we're having a bit of an issue with uh, with the audio here, but again, uh, the the initiative is 88, uh, 88 plus ways uh, for his books, and uh, Keep Music Alive is the name of this initiative that he's been running. Uh, we've been on the phone with Vincent James out of the Philadelphia area. Really, I love stories like this at times like this. So uh, the kind of thing that warms your heart, and he's doing a lot of really good work for his community. So uh, Vincent, uh, I was proud to have you on. Uh, and if there's anything I can do to help you, I want you to let me know, OK? Well, thank you so much, Casey. Appreciate the opportunity. And uh, looking forward to hearing uh, Eric's story. OK, great. Thanks a lot. Well, we'll talk to you soon, all right? Keep up the fantastic work. Thank you. You as well. Okay. Uh, so that was uh, Vincent James, and on the uh, line with me now for the uh, the second part of our triple header here is uh, Eric Schumacher. Uh, Eric, if you've been listening to the show for any length of time, is uh, <clears throat> a really uh, prominent member of, of this show. He's a member of what I affectionately like to refer to as the, or we, I should say, affectionately refer to as the Indie Rat Pack. This is a group of uh, creative types that gets together and horses around and, and makes each other laugh and shares all kinds of uh, creative projects with one another just to let us you know, know what we're seeing and, and try to highlight uh, for the benefit of a, a little group that we have, and they come on here at the end of the year to, to do a year in review. Uh, Eric also operates his own production company called Sealy Studios out of the Arizona area. He's uh, an accomplished actor and director and producer uh, who's won multiple awards for his film and television work, and is one of only a handful of people who has actually played both Doc Holliday and Wyatt Earp on screen in two different projects, of course. Uh, he's also acted as a mentor and uh, he's currently at work on uh, on post-production on uh, two projects, one of which is a, uh, a riotous-looking uh, Western comedy called Horse Camp, and then another one uh, taps into your inner 80s teenager uh, with a, uh, a piece called Revenge of Zoe. These uh, are CRF for Peter Fender, meaning this is one of the people who's a glutton for punishment, and he's been on here more than once. Uh, he's a frequent collaborator of this show and, and all around a really good guy and a good friend, so I'm proud to have him back here. How are you doing? Uh, well, I'm blushing after that intro. Thank you, Casey. That's really, you said some nice things. Thank you, sir. I'm well, very yeah, glad to be yeah. here. Uh, yeah, always, I always tell people it always sounds cooler when somebody else says it, right? Right. Uh -huh. <laughs> <clears throat> I think, uh, Casey, I, I just need to have you, uh, um, you know, once once we once I can get back to occasionally appearing live uh, for things, I need to just uh, pay you to follow me around and intro me. Um. <laughs> yeah, I'll be, I'll be, I'll be your, I'll be your Bundini Brown, and I'll stand in the corner and, and you know, like, like he did for Muhammad Ali, and she, the guy had one job, and that was just to shout positive reinforcements in all these ear between rounds. So. Oh, I dig I, that. It, That'll do a lot for my self-esteem. <laughs> <laughs> might be, might do a little too much for my ego, though. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well. So uh, okay, uh, kidding aside here, what have you been up to? Uh, well, you know, we can we can start with Horse Camp because that was. The oh yeah, yeah. So. So to clarify, Horse Camp, uh, I, that was a project uh, I'm a, a cast member on, a principal member of the cast, and uh, uh, one, the wonderful company Patrick Ball Media um, reached out to me to, to play a really, really fantastic role in that, and I couldn't turn it down. Um, and uh, it's just a, an incredibly funny, uh, very tongue-in-cheek Western comedy um, I, I, you know, it kind of feels like uh, there's there's some Mel Brooksian elements to it. Uh, there's uh, 
it's a little it's a little bit sexy here and there. Um, it's uh, and it's just a heck of a lot of fun. So we uh, we've uh, a great deal of uh, the uh, the first season has been shot. A lot of it is in post production, and of course uh, we're holding on uh, on production for the pandemic. But uh, um, uh, it's just a super funny script, and as soon as uh, we're able to get back out and uh, finish shooting it, uh, we're looking forward to having that thing released. Um, so that's a total blast. I, I didn't realize that that was actually a series. I thought that was a. Uh, uh, you forgive me. That that was uh, my bad. But uh, oh no, no worries. Okay, uh, but that's actually a, a web series, is it? it? It's it's a it's a it'll be a streaming series. Yeah. A streaming series. Okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. And what what's the basic by, byline for it? Or can you share anything along? I can't yet? say much. I'm afraid. Um, okay. Uh, All right. Know, but I have to tell people because uh, I'm I'm. Uh, you know, I've got to I've got to follow the rules that the uh, that the marketing folks have designed. So, uh, all I can say is uh, check out the uh, the trailer. We we can share the uh, the link to the trailer. It is incredibly funny. Gotten a lot of fantastic reactions from it, and uh, we're in teaser mode, I believe. <laughs> teaser mode is a good. Yes. Word, I, so I, once. Yeah. Uh, go go ahead. Yeah. So so once once. Uh, once they give the uh, the go ahead and uh, you know tell me what else I'm allowed to say, I can I can I can I can say more. But the you know you, I, I I will say that uh, uh, you know I really love playing um, unusual characters. I love to as as you've heard me say before, I like to disappear into a role and just. Uh, uh, not be there, and they gave me such an extremely unusual character um, that, uh, uh, well, you'll see in the trailer. You'll get an idea of of, uh, of what I do. No, and you're the kind of person that, that I mean, I've had you on here often enough to know that that, uh, that you have a healthy appreciation for for both, you know, the, the sillier side of things as well as the dramatic side as well, right? I, I do, uh, they, yeah. And that shows because it looks like you're having fun no matter what you're doing, and I and I say that as a high compliment. Thank you very much. Yeah, you know, I and I uh, I, I love comedy and I love drama, and, I, and there's a lot of great value in both. Um, it was, but you know, in terms of how I play comedy, uh, it's important to note that you know you, there are certain techniques that help you to to get comedy the understanding of timing and and you know just understanding what makes a scene funny but the fundamentals of comedy are really very much the same as the fundamentals of drama and i think peter ustinov uh the great british actor said it best in that comedy is drama but funny so i i believe that if you play a a comedic scene straight if you if you really engage like the character would, but you're in a funny situation, that's what makes it funny. The minute you start uh, trying to be funny, it stops being funny. Well, no, and I heard uh, I heard Mike Myers say something similar about that when he was going through the uh, the Second City School in Chicago that a lot of uh, a lot of the the big players did, and and he he said the hardest part about playing in comedy is trying to act like it's not funny when you're in the moment because the laugh is the gift that you give to the audience really that that you know you you yourself are not supposed to you know the character is not supposed to find anything inherently funny about it it's the audience's reaction that makes it that way that's very true and i and i will say you know uh, this this project and the other one that i'm that i'm i've been working on most recently which is a sequel to revenge of zoe which will be coming out soon both had 
such funny lines and funny scenes that one of the one of the things that I do as an actor when I'm working on comedy is I work I, I work the script and when I find those points that are so funny that I have trouble keeping a straight face, I put a special amount of attention on working them until until I can get through them without thinking about how funny they are, and uh, and 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 I put a lot of attention on just again maintaining character in those moments, because uh, you know there there I both with both projects there were so many moments where uh, while I was rehearsing and and preparing, <clears throat> I would lose it every, every time I worked it at certain points because it was just you know it would make me crack up, and that's a good sign though that's a really good sign um, to. Uh, but exactly as 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 Meyer said, you know, to you've, that's the gift that you give. So you have to make sure that you can really give that gift, which means that you've got to get your game on. Um, so the the other uh, project that you have going, of course, is uh, is Revenge of Zoe. Now, th this is something that you and I have talked a fair amount of more offline, admittedly, than than online. I mean, I know that this is a project that you've been that's been near and dear to your heart for for a little while. Uh, what can you share with us about that one? Uh, Revenge of Zoe. It's actually part of a series of uh, indie films, uh, which uh, uh, I first got into with the prior film, uh, Writing Frenzy, and uh, it's set in a comic book store largely. Uh, the new series also has has a lot of scenes in a game store, and uh, it's uh, it's a it's it's a really uh, heartwarming but uh, but very goofy, very very funny uh, comedy series about. People in fandom, uh, which I am, I'm a, I'm well known as a as a mega geek. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, some of my best experiences have been at conventions as a fan, and then later as a presenter and a speaker. Um, and uh, so it's it's about it's about people in fandom, but it's largely also about, um, you know, uh, how how a bunch of very messed up weird people can still love each other, and that's, I think, is kind of the consistent theme. Uh, the series also, particularly the last two films, have a lot of cameos from people who are creators in the industry, uh, comic book creators, authors, um, artists, and so on. Um, some are pretty well-known, some are not as well-known, um, and that's another really beautiful thing that uh, we were able to do with the, the project is... Uh, uh, get a, a bunch of cameos and a bunch of little inserts of people's artwork and so on. There's tons of Easter eggs throughout the the project that are allusions to uh, um, to uh, fan culture and to uh, and the creations of great, uh, primarily science fiction, fantasy, horror creators, uh, but but some others as well. And uh, and of course, it also you know has been a wonderful opportunity to. Um, some of those folks were already friends of mine. In other cases, right, I've had right. the opportunity to meet some other wonderful people and be on set with them. And that's been beautiful. Um, so it's uh, it is really near and dear to my heart because it. Uh, well, to put it this way, when I auditioned for the first film that I was a part of in the series, uh, Writing Frenzy, um, I walked into an audition room. You know, was was called into audition, and. Uh, they and they presented me with the sides, uh, which uh, for those who don't know are a portion of the script that you use to audition. And as I read the character John Burns, who's the character I play in the series, I went, "Oh my gosh, that guy's me!" <laughs> it's it was like the first time that I've uh, played a role, or, or one of the few times that I played a role that was so close to me 
um, that uh, he's still a bit of a character, so it's not, I still have to work a little to get you know to the right space with him. But there's there's so many similarities to to John and I, and uh, and I really felt a, a relationship with the guy. So I remember I really wanted that role <laughs> after I read it, right. and um, and so you know so it's been kind of a uh, in a way it's kind of a cathartic experience to to uh, to play the uh, the nerdy uptight John. Um, and uh, work with a bunch of really fun, wonderful actors in that project. And, and that's one of the fun things about y- your portfolio, because I mean, you're, you know, I, I look at the work that you pre- presented, and you know, you're one of the last people that that I would associate with with, with being a pop culture geek. But I mean, <laughs> you know, the, the love is cl- and I, the love is clearly there, right? And, and, oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, it, it, it's a riot to be able to, you know, when I have you on the show, because I don't know where the hell the conversation's going to be. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, uh, on the subject of which, uh, you know, there were, there were a couple of other things uh, that that uh, I, I know that you, you know, that you let me in on recently that, that I uh, <clears throat> I didn't know about you, but uh, you're also a longtime martial artist. Is that right? That is true. Yes, I've I've studied uh, Shaolin Kung Fu for uh, for quite a few years and uh, uh, taught uh, for quite some time as well. And uh, that's a, that's also a, a passion for me. Been a, a life changing in a positive way experience. I've heard that about that because uh, you you learn a sense of, of discipline and and to a certain extent peace of mind. I've heard that if you stick with it long enough, that you can't learn any other way, right? Yeah, it uh, you know it it it, it my uh, my my grandmaster used to uh, you know really call our our studies uh, a way of uh, getting to know the self better. Um, right. And we always used to say that the uh, the martial aspect, the fighting aspect, uh, is the lowest form of the art. That it's uh, that's right. the uh, we teach it to help keep our students alive so they can learn <laughs> and also right. you learn to through the martial technique you learn to master the body so that you can master the mind so that you can open to the greater reality or the greater spirit and uh, um, you know so that's uh, learning that the, the discipline and learning uh, to it's kind of like a you get a toolbox of things that can be useful in your life when you're experiencing different things um, and uh, a way of focusing and centering. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm still, you know, a, a kind of a uh, an overly emotional basket case. I'm still an actor, um, <laughs> but at least I have some tools to get me back into some level of sanity periodically, and also to be able to face some things. And you know, uh, so that kind of training also really prepares. I'll tell you one thing that's been, you know, very useful aside from just dealing with life issues uh, where. We're having some form of discipline uh, that allows you to that you know this training is very very physically and emotionally difficult when done properly, and so you learn to face a lot of things within yourself, which means that when you're facing things in reality, you can do that better because you've practiced it, um, and you've uh, you know overcome some things intentionally rather than just being faced with the world, um, and then try and then trying to overcome everything on the fly. You're, you're or you've already challenged yourself on a regular basis, and frankly, it's very much the same for me with acting. Uh, it's also a type of discipline that, that forces you to do that. But um, you know, another thing about the martial training is that uh, it has it really helps build your stamina and your your strength. So a lot of the things right. that I've been able to do in the movie world, um, 
you know, are, are because I've trained hard to be able to have a lot of have a lot of energy to be able to have a lot of mental focus, and uh, you know, so um, uh, people call me the Energizer Bunny frequently <laughs> because I, you know I, I I'm I'm on the go quite a lot and uh, um, learning how to push limits and uh, and also what you're capable of doing physically and what you shouldn't do physically. Um, you know, has allowed me to pull off a few things in films that I might not have been able to otherwise. Okay, now uh, on the subject of which, I, get, I was just kind of curious in, in terms of the level of that. Is it, you know whether any of of the films that you've worked in required you to do any stunt work, or whether you felt more comfortable uh, as a result of your background doing certain things. That's an interesting question, and yeah, uh, you know, I've done a little bit of stunt work here and there for projects. Now, here's the thing, uh, I. Uh, martial arts for movies is very different than real martial arts, and uh, I've, I've worked. Uh, one of my favorite uh, people to work with in fight choreography is my good friend Robert Linden, who is uh, was the star of uh, Jean the Alien Interviews, a sci-fi series we worked on together a while back, and uh, and, and and has worked with me on a, a number of other projects. And he's a brilliant fight choreographer as well. And when I and he in particular really took some time to teach me some things, and I realized the the major difference. So I'm not. You know, uh, so you kind of you kind of forget all of the actual technique that you learn as a martial artist and relearn something else. Now that being said, <clears throat> the uh, the timing and the uh, uh, the dexterity and, and all of that uh, allows you to pick up new physical skills quickly. And uh, so I've uh, I've also learned, however, what my limits are. And uh, there are certain things where I, I, I try really hard to let go of ego wherever possible. It's very easy to have ego when you're, uh, uh, when you're a performer and you have to when you're a leader to a certain degree, but I try to let go of it. And uh, so, for example, I'm not going to do a stunt if I don't think I'm the most qualified person to do it. <laughs> so if uh, when I'm presented with something and it's like, you know, so what do you think? Can you do that? And I and I I'm not really sure that I can get through it safely and make it look good. Uh, you know, so for example, techniques that I've learned about how to fall properly as a martial artist are quite different than making a fall look good on screen. You know, back to to Rob Linden, for example, uh, that guy can take a fall that looks like he's completely devastated. He gets up and walks away without an injury, and. Right. Uh, I don't have that level of skill, so if it's going to be a really he heavy fall, I'm not going to take it. Um, you know. But that being said, you know, I, I like to do my own fight scenes where possible. Um, I just need to have a good fight choreographer, and I and I, f I follow exactly what they tell me to do, and then bring the drama to it. Um, and uh, and, you know, and a few and a few little stunts here and there, I'm I'm willing to do. <clears throat> but I also you also have to keep in mind as an actor, and you know, you, there are many famous stories about big, well-known, famous actors who decided to do their own stunts and got badly injured. And right. you know, now I'm also a producer and director, so I'm, I'm thinking big picture all the time, regardless of whether I'm producing on that project. I'm thinking about the safety of the whole project. If I'm uh, if I'm playing an important character in a project and I get injured, the production shuts down. And we right. can't let that happen. So right. if I don't think I, I'm the best one to do this, I'm not doing it because I got to make sure that a professional who's actually quite good at both making it look good and being safe is doing that job and the production doesn't as a whole suffer. And frankly, this is what stunt people live for. They love this stuff. So I don't want to take their moment in the sun, <laughs> you know. Uh, if, if we can take a sidestep here, uh, just, just to – you know, have a sobering reminder of, of the reality of what we're all yeah. facing. 
right? Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, this, you know, the pandemic has shut everything from Comic-Con to Condom, right? Uh, uh, banner events, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, Disney, Disney World is closing its doors. Uh, I, I guess at the grassroots level and, and being on the front lines that you are, what, what is the direct impact to, to a group like Sealy Studios? Well, um, yeah, you know, we have uh, we have productions that uh, were in progress. We had productions that were shooting. We had productions that were uh, that were pitching and getting ready to uh, to go into production on. It creates a big, huge question mark uh, for for us in terms of uh, when we can move forward on a lot of things that are, you know, both uh, entertainment projects that are designed to get out there and and bring people. Uh, you know, something that will make them uh, feel good, or, or you know, or have have, uh, or or something for them to enjoy. Um, it also, you know, is a big question mark as to the revenue streams and uh, and those revenue streams that would go to uh, other performers and 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 crew and and other people involved in the project. So um, it's a scary time for everybody in the entertainment industry because we don't really know. What's going to happen, particularly if you're in the arts, uh, in a in a type of the arts that requires you to be around other people. I mean, you can't right. make a feature film or a television series without other people in close proximity. Right. Uh, you can't, uh, you know, if you're working work in theater, well, theaters aren't working right now. And if you're a musician playing live, as uh, you know, as you were just talking about, um, and many many other. I mean, even artists who might you know, present their work at galleries. Well, if you can't go to galleries, you're not presenting your art, you're right. not selling your art. So it's a really, um, you know, it's a time of, of great uncertainty with uh, in terms of how the industry will carry forward. Um, for us, we do have projects that are in post-production and that will uh, release soon. And so we will have some things out there that will uh, uh, that will keep the wheels turning. And we're also working on uh, audio projects, which we've been gearing up to do for quite some time. So we put, you know, we're putting our focus into those things, um, and uh, while continuing to prepare for getting back on set with the projects in progress, and to prepare for, um, you know, and, and to, you know, work on raising the capital to get other things moving once we're we're able to do that, um, and, uh, you know, but the the really the really uh, devastating thing I think in the short term is that so many performers work and and other artists other 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 members of technical aspects of the arts and everything else i mean the arts industry in general is a is a humongous um uh contributor to world economies uh not just right. the actual consumption of the arts themselves and the paying of tickets for things and the buying of direct uh, pieces of art but you know if you go out to a theater uh, you know, you typically get dressed up, so you've spent money to do that. You go out to the theater. You you you, you go out to dinner before or after. It's uh you know it's it's a way of uh, lots of different things are positively impacted by the arts industry. And when that's not operating, it also means that the people who um, you know depend on the arts for part of their living uh, don't have that part of their living, and they don't know when they're going to have it again. Um, right. And from you know, for many of us also, it's our deep passion. It's it's something that we got into. I mean, you don't want to get into the arts industry um, unless you are desperately passionate for it because it's an incredibly, incredibly difficult field to uh, survive in, let alone succeed in. And, uh, you know, so that's 
it's a it's a huge emotional hit for those of us in the industry when we can't ply our art. So, what advice do you have then for somebody who really needs to to flex their muscles creatively in, in a time when there's you know kind of a dearth for for opportunity to actually go out there and practice? Right. I, I, I guess how how do you stay motivated and and how do you how do you flex your muscles creatively? That's a that's a wonderful question. And so I think the first thing is uh, you know we have to accept uh, the new reality and we have to be what we are, which is creators. So we have to get creative. And I've seen some great examples of that of folks you know using uh, streaming services to to find ways to perform or to find ways to 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 give something. Um, but it's important, I think, to, uh, especially if you, if part of your whole sanity maintenance system is to, uh, is to be an artist, um, that you find ways to find purpose in the short term. Um, and to some degree, you can use this time, uh, if you're so fortunate as to have a safe place to to, to hold up, to hold up, um, you can use this time to focus on working on aspects of your art that maybe you weren't focusing on on ho on honing prior to this happening. Um, so you know, if you, if you're an actor and you've never delved into Shakespeare, crack out crack out that Shakespeare. You can even find it right. online. Uh, if you're a uh, uh, if you're a musician and there you know there was a piece of music that was eluding you, work on that. An artist, whatever it is, work on on practicing, work on connecting with other people within the arts community and the arts business world as well. So, I mean, uh, you know, this is a great time to network and talk with people and learn from people and take classes online, and also potentially a great way to uh, a time to. You know, find something that you can deliver to others online if you uh, if you if you weren't uh, thinking about doing that before. Uh, maybe you can teach a class online. Maybe you can. Uh, a lot of actors have been reading uh, portions of uh, of books that they have rights to, or uh, musicians playing music. A, a good, uh, as has happened many times, a, a good uh, friend of mine, uh, Peter Goritz, uh, did a, a live performance to launch an album recently online. <clears throat> it, was, it was very nice. Um, so, and then think about your plans. You know, a, a lot of uh, uh, a lot of artists don't necessarily think about strategy, and uh, um, and this is a good time to really refine your strategy for the move forward once uh, once you're able. To get back out into the world and and and, and work somewhat closer to uh, what what was normal, um, so you know build build your build your move ahead strategy and make sure that you're ready to get out of the gates and and do ten times better than what you were. Um, so that's uh, that's 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 what I recommend. Is that the most important thing is uh, for I believe is is the 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 maintenance of a purpose um, because without purpose humans tend to devolve humans tend to fall apart and so we have to find uh, a daily purpose and we have to find a goal to hit that's something that we can that we can uh, that we can attain yeah stagnation is the enemy at this point right absolutely 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 and fear <clears throat> you know um, fear too yeah I, I I've seen a lot of uh, we've all seen uh, 
you know, reports of people reacting in fear and protesting the uh, um, the stay-at-home orders and reacting in fear and, you know, not quite knowing what to do with themselves. And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, I've seen a lot of artists uh, in particular very fearful about, certainly about their careers and, and, and uh, you know, fearful about uh, many different things. This is a time that, understandably, people are, people are afraid. Um, and, uh, but we have to, we have to master that, um, you know, we have to acknowledge and let ourselves feel the fear, but we also have to, um, find, find things to, again, give us that, that purpose so that we can, uh, focus away from the fear and, and we have to think, we have to, you know, once, once we find methods to manage our fear, um, start using our minds to, uh, to, to better assess situations and figure out how uh, to, to get through the day. Um, I had a, an interesting moment uh, last night, <clears throat> which I think is uh, metaphoric for a lot of what's going on. I, was, uh, I, went, I, went, to, I, I went to get some takeout supporting a local restaurant uh, and, uh, you know, and, and making my wife happier because she likes this place. And, uh, and I did that last night. You know, I was masked. I was, you know, completely as, as, as safe as I could possibly be considering. And uh, on the way back, I w there was a, as I was driving, it was at night, there was a rabbit in the middle of the road suddenly. And the rabbit was sitting there completely still. Um, but it was sitting up, so it was alive. And, uh, and I, you know, I saw it just with a split second to react. And so I, you know, I couldn't swerve in time. So I centered the car so that I could get straight over it. And I went, oh, well, you know, I want to know if this rabbit is all right. So I went back around and, and drove back towards where the rabbit was. It was still sitting there, frozen in the middle of the road, eyes wide. Something had terrified it, and it was just frozen there. And uh, so I swerved and I tried honking my horn and, you know, hoping it would run out of the street. I don't know what happened to it. I couldn't see it after that. Um, but I realized that that kind of fear can paralyze us and keep us from from moving, um, from, from thinking straight, and it can put us in danger. So it's important for us to acknowledge that fear is, uh, you know, to quote Frank Herbert, fear is the mind killer, right? Uh, right. Writer of Dune, uh, that, that fear is an enemy. And uh, we, we can learn things from fear about ourselves and about how we function as people and about uh, um, about our own psyches, and we should take the time to learn those things. Um, but we also must acknowledge that uh, the, the the fear itself is not uh, uh, what we are um, w is not what we're combating outside of ourselves. It's something that we're combating inside of ourselves. And knowledge um, and strategy and awareness. Um, and a certain degree of self-care can help us to overcome that fear so that we don't make stupid decisions, <clears throat> such as sitting in the middle of a road when there are cars coming, not knowing what to do. Um, if that rabbit had been able to get out of its own head for a moment, it might have stepped about four feet to the side uh, using its ample, uh, you know, its, its, its legs and its speed and its dexterity and not gotten run over, and I, and I hope it didn't. Uh, one of the things that, that I would have to imagine, and I'm going to run over a little bit with you, Eric, if I can. Uh, yeah. You, you, you free for another few minutes? I am. Absolutely. All right. All right. Okay. Um, just in terms of uh, th th there's got to be a paradox at some point, because on the one hand, you're, you, you've got people that, that can't go out there and produce content. Right. 
But on the other hand, it's a question of supply and demand in economic terms that, that you know, the supply isn't coming in, but the demand is arguably greater than it ever has been because you got all these people at home. Right? Yeah, yeah. So there's only going to be a finite amount of content out there for people to consume before they're going to start demanding more of it. I, I yeah. have to imagine that there's going to be a tipping point where it would almost be a new golden age for for content producers because people are going to want new stories, right? Oh uh, yeah, yeah. I, I anticipate that it that it will, and uh, you know, and and for the, you know, it's uh, um, certainly there's a tremendous rise in the viewing of online content. This is another actually you know, important thing. You know, when it comes to economy, uh, everything has been shifting more towards the consumption of content online and the consumption of content by more and more people anyway uh, just as everything has been shifting to um, you know lots of lots of different industries have been shifting as technology has been growing and and entrepreneurs find possibilities within that within that technology and so this is going to cause a hard shift in certain areas that we're already developing um, you know, uh, so yeah, there, we're we're going to need more content than we ever have because entertainment does provide value in the world. Arts provide value in the world, and people, uh, this is arts provide a way of uh, uh, of, of of people having a, a something in common that they can talk about. Arts provide a way of uh, inspiring us to to do to do better or you know or or to understand someone else's situation a little bit more through their eyes through the uh, through the creation of art uh, it uh, it's it's an important thing uh, and uh, and so yeah i believe that there will be kind of a renaissance in in the arts after this and a lot of uh, those who maybe some of those who weren't known will be known uh, because more people will be looking for content um, and will run out of 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 the content that they were already aware of um, and uh, you know and and I think that uh, that more people will become comfortable uh, who weren't already with watching more content that's easier for them to access um, and uh, therefore will probably spend more time doing that even afterwards as the habit is built to do even more uh, viewing of content uh, online and through other uh, remote um, uh, content viewing options. Um, so it's going to be quite interesting to see how that affects the economy of the industry. Um, but I think uh, overall, in the long run, it will probably be a very positive thing for um, the entertainment industry as, as a whole. Um, but there will be definitely some, some big challenges and some big bumps in the road before then. So, so what in your view, like I, I've got my own at least hope in terms of what's going to happen next, but mm -hmm. uh, I mean, we've, we've established that labels don't matter the same way that they used to, right? In terms of what constitutes, uh, uh, you know, a movie, whether it's released in the theater, whether it's released online or, or, you know, what constitutes a TV series, whether it has to be released episodically one week over the next and, or whether you can open up all your Christmas presents at once and, and watch them on one of the major streaming services. But um what does this say about the future of traditional movie theater houses? That's a that's a really very good question. It's a question that I can't answer too well because we don't really know how things are going to play out with the pandemic. Exactly. Um, yeah. But but I, I mean my hypothesis is that 
if, uh, and this is a big if, although it seem it seems, uh, you know, bear, bearing in mind I am not a virologist myself, but uh, but it seems that the that the you know that the really top-notch virologists are are saying that they believe that we will reach some level of Im immunity or some sort of vaccine at some point, hopefully in the not too distant future. Um, so it's possible that uh, we will get to a point where we can congregate in regular groups again. People are so aware now of uh, of of what you know what various communicable diseases can do, um, and I, I I'm I've been saying all along uh, for for years uh, that uh, people should be generally more careful. I've had you know uh, bad flus a couple of times in the past that were life threatening, and uh, right. so I'm and I have you know allergy based asthma so i'm i'm aware of this stuff and i've researched a lot of stuff in an effort to keep myself and other people around me safe and so people will probably just in general become a lot more aware of of being careful about things like social distancing or the coughing in their hands which is a habit i've seen a lot of people have and then touching stuff and other people um so that will probably change i suspect that you know, a lot of theaters are going to go down because they just won't be able to maintain uh, while, while people are, are afraid to go to theaters. Um, and that's going to dramatically change the exhibition industry of, of films and theater. Um, I think that there will be some that survive and others that are built afterwards. And they'll be built with some protocols in mind about maybe not having as many seats close together, um, about... Um, uh, you know, sanitization practices, but people do really love that experience of congregating together in a theater. Um, now that being said, again, you know, a lot of folks have just become very uh, used to going to theaters to consume uh, media that they love, and it's an experience I love. Um, but as they become habitualized to watching more things online, many of the people who used to patronize theaters a lot probably won't and that'll hit the industry hard um but uh but i think it is you know just uh, so so there'll probably be less of them but i do think that they'll continue to exist and i do think that they'll continue to be a place where people can share those those experiences together um just in some different ways um but ultimately it's such a beloved thing it's such a thing that uh, um you know it's such a way of for for the most part, relatively low expense, you can go and enjoy um, a, share, a shared experience that makes you feel a bunch of emotions and then chat about it with your friends afterwards. Uh, I, don't, I don't think people are going to give that up easily, and so we'll find a way to make it work. Um, but maybe we won't have, you know, uh, 30 theaters per town. <laughs> Right. Yeah. 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 Oh, that, that's a fair point. Uh, so at this point, we're going to have to tie this up, Eric. Uh, we're we're going to extend our apologies to uh, to Tanner Beard. Uh, we seem to have uh, had a bit of a, a scheduling issue or something. So Tanner, if you're listening to this, I'd be proud to have you on. Um, we're going to plug for his project, We Summon the Darkness, which was uh, uh, a film by Mark Myers. And uh, again, another referral from, from Krista Shirk. I had a chance to watch three films over the course of the last three weeks, all joking aside, uh, Survival Skills, and then uh, most recently, We Summon the Darkness, which was a, a really fun, high-octane horror suspense romp uh, that was shot in Winnipeg, Manitoba, that also featured... Um, a really fun and, and uh, 
you know, juicy extended cameo by one Mr. Johnny Knoxville. So, uh, Tanner, if you're listening to this, I had a blast watching it today. And I'd be proud to have you on anytime that you like. So We Summon the Darkness is the name of this. That was just launched uh, over the course of the last 10 days or so. Uh, it's a really fun film if you get a chance to watch it anywhere. So uh, that aside, Eric, uh, my last word is with you. Where can people go to learn more about what you're doing? Ah, okay. Uh, well, of course, I'm all over social media on uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and uh, LinkedIn mainly. Um, so feel free to look me up in any of those places. Um, you can also go to my, my desperately needing to be updated personal <clears throat> website, uh, erichumacherfilm.com. That's S-C-H-U-M-A-C-H-E-R. <clears throat> you can go to our uh, company website, sealystudios.com. Um, and, uh, um, and I would love to, uh, to connect with folks um, and uh, be able to share some of what we're working on. Um, and uh, so those are those are the main spots. I do want to also note that uh, next week uh, on uh, Saturday the 25th uh, at uh, I believe it's 1:30 p.m. Central, I am uh, uh, do, doing a uh, uh, an online class for free um, as part of Articon, which is a uh, an online fan convention put on by uh, by Arta Wigs, which is a, a company that specializes in doing wigs for um, cosplayers. And uh, and it's about it's called actoring about uh, how to get started as an actor. Um, and uh, if you go to uh, uh, and I'm sure we can share the link for that as well. But if you go to uh, uh, arda-wigs.com and check and click on the Articon uh, area and then go to the panels, you'll find me on the 25th. And I would love to have people join and I'll teach you a little bit if you didn't already know about how to get started as an actor and what uh, what it's like to be one. Well, again, Eric, it's uh, it's always a riot catching up with you, and, and thanks a lot for giving us uh, time out of your afternoon for this. All right? It's my great pleasure, and I uh, just want to send my thanks out to all of the people who are out there working to keep us safe and supplied, and, uh, and also to my fellow artists. Uh, just to remember that you are important, too, and uh, let's hold solidarity together as, as people who, uh, who love to give something joyful to others. Here, here. Uh, I'll echo that. Uh, you know, if you're out there, this is not something to be trifled with. Uh, take care of yourself and each other. You too, sir. Uh, uh, and we're going to be, uh, you know, we're going to get through this one way or the other. So, uh, Eric, I'm just going to invite you to hang on for a minute after I sign yes, off here. And uh, I'm going to call it for the afternoon again um, with a shout out to uh, to Tanner Beard and to Krista Shirk. Uh, Tanner, anytime you want to do the show. Let me know. We're going to make it happen. Uh, with a thank you to my guests, uh, Vincent James and uh, Eric Schumacher, even list of Casey Ryan on the cutting room floor, and I'll be back over the course of the next few days. I'm not going anywhere. Until then, I'm going to call it cut, print, wrap, and I am done. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.